0: Welcome, dear readers. This is a very special opportunity to consider uh, one of the core concepts behind the Garland platform. Uh, We have an interview with the archaeologist Dylan Rogers from Virginia, United States of America. And I should say, before we begin, something about why Garland is called Garland. It goes back to 2012 uh, at an event in Delhi, India, there was a a quite significant jewellery arts summit there, which was organised by Madam Usha Krishna, who was then president of the World Crafts Council. This summit, called Kaivalam, was about the celebration of adornment, both in India and the rest of the world. And we discussed about an exhibition of jewellery that would be uh, covering the Asia-Pacific region, And we thought, what is the common link, really, between forms of adornment uh, from across uh, West Asia, the Middle East, over to uh, Oceania? And we considered that, really, the garland in all its various guises, from the lei in Hawaii to to the mala in India, was a very significant feature of the material culture and particularly adornment. So we looked at jewellery inspired by the garland, but it kind of opened up a a question really about the nature of uh, adornment and craft because uh, craft in the West is usually associated with uh, a product. It's something which goes into a gallery or shop and uh, sometimes collected uh, and has a, a kind of a commodity status to it. Whereas a garland, uh, you might be able to find a, a fresh garland in a flower market somewhere in India. But uh, generally, uh, they're obviously ephemeral. That's their beauty, the fact that they release this beautiful fragrance, but they will only last a couple of days. And uh, so they're not the sort of things one would ever think of collecting. So they have a kind of a status that's different. Plus, they're usually given as offerings. They're not, uh, they're not property They're something associated with idols, uh, daily worship, or welcome of guests. Uh, And it opened up this question of whether, in a sense, our understanding of craft was limited to particularly uh, the commodity system and capitalism. And uh, this blinded us to uh, a whole other way of thinking and being that is particularly strong in the the region where Australia is, the, the Eastern Hemisphere, and this opened up uh, questions about the the nature of particularly floral adornment. and coming across this article by Dylan Rogers, which I do recommend, it's an available in open access, on the hanging garlands of Pompeii, uh, I think revealed something very interesting about the enduring uh, nature of the garland uh, throughout, certainly in the West, uh, but something which does extend to the East as well. So, uh, Dylan Rogers, welcome.
1: Thank you for having me. Uh,
0: can you begin by telling us something a little about yourself and how you became interested in this particular field?
1: Yeah, so I'm a, um, by training, I'm a classical archaeologist, which for, for audience members means that I study the material culture of uh, the ancient Greeks and Romans from prehistory basically until, say, let the 8th century A.D., um, and so these are primarily. This is a culture based in the Mediterranean, um, and so I've had a lot of experience in Greek and Roman uh, forms of archaeology. But my specialty is is Roman archaeology, um, and I will say, you know, con- t- tangentially, I'm I'm actually a specialist in Roman water features. But I've always been very interested in uh, Roman religion, especially domestic religion. You know, how do Romans express themselves um, in daily devotions? Because One of the the things that's really current in classical archaeology right now is um, thinking about the daily lives of of these ancient peoples that we don't know. And so using archaeology to figure out um, how life actually functioned, which I think is really important. And so in this particular topic, the hanging garlands, they're tied to um, primarily Roman domestic religion, but other religious practice that you can see through the Roman city. And so um, I've I've always been interested in this, even from... uh, as an undergraduate, I actually started thinking about this subject in a, in a way. And so I've, you know, progressively kind of worked on it and it finally kind of culminated in this this particular uh, piece about hanging garlands and how um, wall surfaces can show how uh, physical garlands were put on them, which we can unpack together.
0: Yes. So let's just uh, look at the, the frescoes in Pompeii. Uh, so we all know that uh, this is an, an incredible... Snapshot of Roman life that was uh, frozen in around I think 79 uh, AD when uh, the volcano erupted, and uh, but these frescoes uh, offer us a glimpse of uh, the the daily life of what was happening there. Uh, what what do the frescoes tell us, and what's what's their nature?
1: Yeah, so that's the the great thing about, or we're very privileged, I should say, to have this kind of it's it's a time capsule. Right. And as you say, Pompeii was destroyed in 79 by Mount Vesuvius's eruption. And so it basically sealed off a, a, a town. And, and Pompeii at that point, it's a harbor town. Um, it, a lot of different people are coming through there, um, but we have the houses, the shops, the civic center. Um, and so it's sealed for our, our kind of delectation in a way. Um, and luckily, you know, it was discovered in 1748 of our era um, and it's it's been slowly excavated up until the present day. Um, we've excavated about three fifths of the site, and so uh, what? And we're even excavating now. There's new discoveries, new new frescoes coming out that are so vibrant and crisp because, you know, because it's been excavated since you know, 1748. It's um, the preservation has kind of gone downhill for a bit, but we've been very uh, privileged like I said, to have these frescoes in their context, which is really important to see how an ancient Roman would experience a space in the wall decoration on them. And so primarily uh, the frescoes that um, we typically deal with are from domestic contexts. So how, um, you know, a Roman family would use a house and what's on those walls. Um, but the great thing about Pompeii, because it's totally preserved is that we have these painted surfaces not just in domestic spaces but public spaces so you think of the the, the city the city center the, the what we call the forum um, we have frescoes there we have frescoes in shops right so the, the romans loved fast food and so the shops that served fast food had frescoes in them but in, even in addition to that there are frescoes in the public baths the public latrines. And even the streets themselves, the, the facades of these uh, streets had frescoes on them. So the Roman city is an extremely vibrant, kind of colorful place um, that is sometimes you know, lost. If you, if you were to go to a Roman site, say, in the Mediterranean, a lot of them, you know, they don't have these frescoes intact, so you lose that element of daily life. And so frescoes are a really interesting way to, to get at these questions of how the Roman city, how the Roman house was used.
0: Yes, yeah, so uh, obviously one of the features that uh, you were interested in was the what appears to be a trompe l'oeil uh, depiction of garlands uh, on the walls, mm-hmm. uh, which perhaps indicated maybe that uh, they were playing an important role, but uh, uh, it appears that they're not just trompe l'oeil images of garlands, are they? You found some way in which they also instruct people about uh, how to actually... Hang the garlands on the wall. Is that right?
1: Right. So in these examples that I'm looking at, and I have a uh, usually, you know, archaeologists we love a good data set. We like to pull in lots of of numbers and information to kind of tell the story um, based on physical evidence. Um, but in this case, uh, I have a pretty small set of data. So I have uh, what I've found in the study is about nine examples of this kind of um, what I'm calling a mimetic act. And so I'm looking at religious kind of devotional scenes on the walls, and these are coming from kitchens, bakeries, um, those fast food restaurants I mentioned, um, latrines, and public shrines at um, uh, street crossings. Um, And so these are devotional um, images that show um, these uh, kind of protective gods that the Romans worshipped called the lares. And so these are devotional scenes and you have these, you know, these gods that um, are appearing. There's, you know, elements of sacrifice um, with these particular deities. Um, But what's usually, what's interestingly enough, above these kind of uh, devotional scenes is a painted garland, right, that is hung over the scene. But what I've been able to find are in the plaster of the fresco itself are actual holes for nails, which means, and we have enough um, uh, evidence from the ancient literature, which is one of the benefits of classical archaeology, as we have a literary record to, to match up or to kind of problematize the material culture, is we have enough information that we know Romans gave garlands in various religious rites, and so in these particular um, this particular data set, um, we have I have examples of either actual iron nails coming from the wall, or um, holes in the wall where you would affix a nail. And then so on top of a painted garland, you would actually hang a physical garland as an act of devotion um, to these particular deities. So it's this really interesting intersection of the kind of two-dimensional painted surface and the three-dimensional physical garland kind of coming together in this one space.
0: Hmm. So it was a kind of instruction, really saying hang here
1: right yeah it's, uh, it's very suggestive of uh, religious practice yeah
0: and maybe when the garlands weren't there it was a residual sign perhaps as a sort of a backup maybe uh to, right. it's, to, and, to restore yeah. its uh, value
1: and in certain um, instances we know that there's certain times when you are supposed to give a garland to these particular deities um, at certain times of the year or once a month, certain festivals, but it's it's always there, right? It's a kind of constant reminder of this kind of um, this votive, you know, devotional act that you're supposed to be doing. So it's it's always kind of in the back of your mind. Give that garland.
0: And just to pause a little there, Dylan, uh, what do you think the nature of that offering is? Maybe there's a variety of different experiences, but is it a is it an aesthetic act in the sense of uh, an opportunity to actually just then simply enjoy the the flowers and to decorate, or is it a in a sense uh, a sense of a, a almost a superstitious feeling that these gods had control over your world and you had to please them in some way uh, and make make like gifts to keep them on side, uh, or maybe there's there's other things going on. What's your reading of what what this is this is doing?
1: Yeah, so that's a that's a very good question. So, um, and in these particular scenes, the, the gods in question we uh, we know they're called the lares, and they're usually kind of a pair of uh, of these kind of male figures that we know are uh, what we call tutelary or protective deities, um, and they can, um, for the most part, we know they kind of protect the house and the family. They're kind of tied to a sense of place, um, but we also know that these particular deities they have different guises. Um, And so we know that there's the lares um, of the crossroads, there's lares of the Emperor Augustus, um, right? So they come in different forms, but what they're really there for is protection. And so, you know, in the kind of Roman, Greco-Roman pantheon, um, the kind of devotional system is you give the gods something and the gods will give you something in return. Um, and so it might be a little bit, you know, what we might call superstition, but it's it's all about this sense of security, maybe in a way, um, that they you give these uh, these gods a garland or another type of offering. So um, these lares, they like kind of small gifts. So you give them a garland, you might give them a cake, um, maybe burn something like that. It's not a blood offering, which is what you might think of when you think of Greco-Roman religion of a, a full on animal sacrifice. These are very kind of low key Um, types of gifts to give, and it seems like everyone does give them. And we know that from the literature, right, that um, we have these kind of admonitions that we have a, there's a particular writer called Cato in the the late Republic, second century BC, um, who talks about how you run a, a farm, an estate, And in part of that system, right, you have the overseer who happens to be a slave that we call the vilicus, who's married to, you know, the mistress of of, of the the state, this vilica, and one of her main jobs is to make sure that the lares get monthly garland um, kind of uh, offerings. And so it's just part of kind of religious practice um, to give these garlands um, to kind of make sure that all the protections are in place. Um, and it's what it's tying into what, you know, how I'm interpreting this um, is kind of what we call what we're, scholars in my field are now calling kind of a lived religion uh, approach. And so that's thinking about how the Romans, uh, the Greek, you know, the Greeks and the Romans, but the Romans in particular here, um, you know, how we can reconstruct their daily devotional kind of practices and activities and so that's using kind of literary evidence and this this material evidence and thinking about how a Roman would communicate with the divine, right, and how they can get this protection and the offerings that they can um, they can give. And we know this can come in various forms. If You know, you can think of, you know, maybe Christian practice today, right, you know, prayer, the kind of oral act, um, you might be reading something, right, the written act. But what we have here, though, is what we can call the pictorial act. Right, so we see the act of devotion through the painted form that we now see with the you know the evidence for actual physical garlands. Um, this kind of um, this suggestion of um, a votive that you know kind of acts in different ways. So it's kind of kind of interesting in that respect.
0: Have you ever wondered uh, in terms of this lived religion approach because it's not necessarily as strongly tied to theology as uh, the more institutional readings of religion might be have you ever wondered to what extent this might be extended beyond uh, religion particularly into the modern secular west Uh, can you see any parallels in terms of everyday life in 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 ways that echo perhaps the lived religion you might find in in pompeii or in antiquity
1: that's a that's a quite an interesting question um the the kind of one of the aspects, an important aspect of Greco-Roman religion is um, there's no kind of written dogma. And so if we're thinking, you know, maybe today of a modern kind of Christian perspective, I'm, I'm personally a Catholic myself. And so I kind of come from it in that, you know, approach these um, these topics and in that way, I think about my own experience, right? There's a kind of a written dogma, right? We have all these written texts of how we're supposed to act as a Catholic, right? That the Greco-Romans do not have. There is no kind of written bible let's say air quotes uh, of what uh, religious practice is it's just part of kind of everyday life um and so that's why this lived religion approach is pretty uh, kind of an interesting and important way to approach uh ancient religion where we don't they don't have the same kind of parameters that kind of what we consider today in modern religion or at least in kind of the west but you know in, in in that kind of vein i think um at least from my own experience in Western religion, um, there are we do have similar kind of ways of kind of approaching, you know, outside of um, kind of the prescribed um, ways about going things. Right, you can go to mass, you can go to confession, but you can you can give offerings too. You can light a candle, uh, and, and various things like that. Um, that actually this ancient live religion approach actually stemmed out of um, studies about kind of American Catholicism, right, where we can have these feast days where, you know, the St. Joseph, let's say, for example, um, where we have, you know, you build an altar and you give these kind of ephemeral, these um, uh, uh, offerings that will go away at a certain point, like flowers or foodstuffs, various things like that, um, that I do think still permeate um the kind of live religion of the modern day. Um, And I I spent a lot of time um, over the last uh, six years or so living and working in Greece. Right. So thinking about kind of the Orthodox um, kind of system of that, and they do the similar types of things. So I'm thinking of uh, on Good Friday every year, right before Easter, there's this, um, this really interesting kind of ritual associated with um, the liturgy um, where um, Greek Orthodox, um, People will decorate um, what is basically um, kind of like an, it's not an altar, but it's a portable um, kind of canopy that in the interior of the canopy, there's usually a, a tapestry of uh, the, dead, um, the, the image of the dead Christ um, as he's been laid in the tomb. But what happens on Good Friday is usually the, 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 um, the parish will decorate this canopy with um, living flowers. Right, and so it's this act of devotion um, to decorate the canopy. You'll venerate the icon of the dead Christ, and then later in the evening, these canopies will often be processed throughout the town. Right, so it's these similar types of actions. I think that we can see today, especially in the West, um, that are you know in a, in a kind of tangential way related to what's happening in the Roman world.
0: I certainly recommend one of the stories in our North American issue. Uh, Dylan, which uh, was about the Catholic shrines in New York, Mm -hmm. uh, which were partly an expression of the skills of the the builders who were the Italian Italian migrants uh, who were partly showing them off but also reflecting the more southern Catholic traditions in Italy Mm -hmm. for creating grottos uh, for devotion.
1: Yeah. and uh, yeah.
0: so it's interesting to see how it extends now I recall being in Bangalore and, uh, which has a wonderful flower market and uh, which opened very early before dawn and so I noticed that many bangaloreans would collect uh, in a little plastic bag uh, a garland and take it back to their office uh, where it would uh, be placed on a on an idol
1: mm-hmm
0: And uh, it was a wonderful thing to see how flowers would circulate through the entire city uh, in the morning. Uh, And you, I think, do look at the comparative uses of garlands in other cultures beyond the West in your article. Uh, To what extent do you see similarities and differences in the use of garlands beyond the Roman into the, the Eastern religion say?
1: Yeah, so I, I did have in in this particular uh, research, I did a, a little bit of um, kind of comparative evidence. Um, and I what I was looking at um, is kind of ancient Buddhist practice. Um, so thinking about how garlands are used in Buddhist practice, um, at least in the basically almost the same time period. So the first to uh, third centuries, let's say, uh, of, of, of AD. Um, and so we do have some evidence uh, of this kind of practice. So I'm, I was thinking of the great stupa at Sanchi. Um, and, you know, the great part about a stupa is there's the circumambulation around the stupa, the circular form of the stupa. Um, but what we know, it, it seems that garlands are placed on the stupa itself. Um, and so we also have evidence of reliefs from this time period of, um, you know, model stupas, right, with garlands on them. But then on these models themselves, there's hooks for garlands too. So it's, again, a very kind of similar type of mimetic act. Uh, You see it, you give it, it's always there. Um, But it's this kind of interesting uh, kind of, again, this breaking the barriers between the the second and third dimensions.
0: Mm. It does seem to be something which connects different cultures together and is certainly ongoing when you look. You know, even visit big cities like Bangkok. You know, you see the the temples there, uh, surrounded by stands selling selling garlands as offerings. And uh, it is something. It's one of the questions when you look, for instance, at the research into into votives, how it is often seen as something exclusive to the world of antiquity, and uh, you wonder to what extent uh, modernity, which to an extent views objects in terms of their use value rather than symbolic value mostly uh, has missed something in this particular tradition and I think your research uh, certainly helps us appreciate the, the role and the meaning that these kinds of rituals gave uh, the lives of everyday Romans and uh, considering particularly during the pandemic and lockdown which is a, a time of great reflection and Focusing on the here and now, whether whether these sorts of activities are ones that we might think of reviving. Um, so I'm just curious at the end, uh, Dylan, whether you're uh, going to pursue this research, or are you more focusing particularly on, on on water culture in in the Roman time.
1: Well, I yeah, you know, right now I'm I'm treading water, let's say, with Roman uh, water culture. But I have been thinking more about pushing this research because. Uh, if you read their article, it's a, it's a, like I've said, it's a, it's a small data set. It's, it's only about nine examples. The problem you know, uh, with this type of evidence is preservation. And while I did say that Pompeii is pretty well preserved, um, the elements of deterioration over the last few centuries, especially on when it's excavated, that causes problems of, um, are the holes still there? After excavation, I've noticed um, through the use of archival photographs, Um, that sometimes excavators would remove the nails and then plaster over the holes. Um, And so that causes problems of interpretation. And, you know, the evidence is out there, but how much do we have? And so thinking about that going forward, you know, it necessitates actually going to Pompeii and going around these houses, these numerous houses and looking at the walls. Um, and it 's a form it 's one of these interesting parts of classical archaeology is you know you might think of excavation digging in the dirt with systematic uh, research questions you might actually um, there 's another form called what we call survey archaeology, where you walk a field um, in a very systematic way to uh, pick up objects, look at landscape to understand how uh, a space is used but there 's another form what we can maybe call building archaeology where it's it 's a form of autopsy where you go and look. And so the next stage of this, if it were to go further, would be to go and look at them to find the evidence that, you know, you can't find in um, in published materials that are on the ground. And that's one of the, the kind of fun and interesting parts about um, classical archaeology is there's a lot of data out there. But if you're looking or asking a different question, you can find new data to answer those questions. So that would be the kind of next the next part of this. Um, we could also include um, other media, artistic media. So um, I only vaguely mention in the in this particular piece um, the fact of um, altars. So the the Greco, Greco-Roman religion um, and often had a, a built altar, um, and the Romans themselves, when they um, sculpt ar- altars, they often will include garlands on them, um, and there there might be some evidence for um, attaching physical garlands onto altars. Um, during the act of uh, blood sacrifice. Um, so that could be another kind of element to it. But it could also just be part of an overarching question of, you know, what is Roman religion? You know, how did Romans practice these kind of um, devotional acts um, as kind of a wider project, um, you know, just in using this as kind of, one of a case study. So there's lots of different things that could, to, could happen out of this to, to really unpack what's happening uh, in the daily lives of Romans.
0: Well, thanks very much, Dylan. It would be great to follow that research. And I think I'd like to uh, to say that what you've done is to uh, help us realise that when we see depictions of, uh, of say, say, flowers or various other nature elements in the classical world, that uh, it, it may not just be uh, a representation itself, but uh, simply also a way of kind of vestige or shadow of the actual offerings that were laid upon those particular structures. And this perhaps makes us think about uh, ritual and its importance, as you say, in a lived religion or a living craft that's uh, very important to our, our experience of the world. So thank you very much, Dylan.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: You've been listening to a podcast from Garland Magazine. Please check our website garlandmag.com for more stories behind what
1: we make.